Yeah, it's nice to be at the Booksmith. I love reading here. Uh, it's always a good crowd and uh, it's such a cool place. Um, I'm going to be reading from Mathematicians in Love tonight. Show up in this passage. What's the? The love interest wasn't in this passage. Oh, the love interest, no. Uh, I picked out one. Well, I felt like reading about the Tang Fat Hotel because it's not very far from here. <laughs> so, yeah, the love interest did not really turn up here. But there is love interest in the book, trust me. <laughs> the, the woman's name is Alma, and uh, yeah, both the guys are in love with her. And then there's another woman called Cammy Vent. She's sort of a Chrissy Hind type, kind of a rocker. She's pretty cool, too. Oh, and then there's Jutta Schreck. She plays in a German, a Polish heavy metal band, sort of like the Scorpions. She's very cool. She's got mirror shade contacts that cover her whole eyes. Uh, when is it taking place? Well, roughly right about now. So I would say it's uh, it's pretty much set in the present. Um, they're just ramping up on uh, video blogging in the book because I, I sort of got interested in that idea last year. I guess it's been almost two years since I wrote the book. And I was happy that in the interim, YouTube has gotten really popular. So it's it's sort of like what I was writing about is, is now more more part of the reality. Yes? Some cone shell snails are very, very poisonous, like the box jellyfish and the uh, loaf, puffer fish right. and certain snakes. Um, That's something I talk about. I tend to lay Yeah, there's actually, I have a, I brought a cone shell with me. I can show it to you if he'll unlock it. The, yeah, the cone shells, the, there's a lot of reasons that I, I write about cone shells. You mentioned that they're poisonous. Yeah, there's, they have this substance called conotoxin that they secrete, and it's the most powerful painkiller known to man. But unfortunately, when they give it to you, uh, I think it gives you seizures or it stops your heart, so they have to drip it directly into your spinal cord. And then they usually stop doing it after a while because you start having really strong hallucinations. But uh, other than that, you know, it's a great painkiller. <laughs> but uh, conotoxins, yeah, they look like this. And uh, if though, a few of you are probably devoted enough fans of mine that you know my book, The Life Box, The Seashell, and The Soul. And this is on the cover of that book. See, this is sort of a mascot for Stephen Wolfram. That great Yeah. Because yeah, it's an example of a, you can pass it around, but uh, Gladys put a, put a. Uh, cellular automaton. Yeah, it's an example of one-dimensional cellular automaton. But actually in this book, I do have a guy who's getting, actually dealing conotoxins, and uh, he's sort of an old hippie. He's Alma's father. <laughs> the, uh, the color change in the... Uh the um, computing brain. Uh -huh. Is that based on uh, Zabatini or Zabatinsky reaction? Oh, Zabatinsky scrolls. Uh, I do often try to... So you ask if the color on the, the, the paracomputer had to do with... Do you have an idea from that? Uh, well, I do generally... Uh, as you might know, I, I worked in cellular automata for many years, and there's one kind of cellular automaton I like that makes these two-dimensional scrolls, sort of like living Paisley, and they're called Jabotinsky scrolls. 
So when I want to mention a, a sort of non-traditional type of computation, I very often think of a, a some kind of screen that has those things on it. And uh, in this particular scene, it wasn't so much scrolls that they're seeing. It's more just like a series of, of radiating circles. It's like you couldn't decide whether to be to be blue or or, or red. But uh, I just finished a book. I have a book in the pipeline now called Post Singular, and there's a. They actually have Jabotinsky scrolls up in the sky, and you get this sort of planetary brain happening. So yeah, I always like to fall back on them. And there's a story in my collection, Mad Professor, where they uh, they use Jabotinsky scrolls. Uh, for car paint. People find a way to paint your car with uh, two different chemicals that do a reaction to fusion reaction, and they actually form Jabotinsky scrolls on the car. So you get this very beautiful patterns. Very big in San Jose. <laughs> My hometown. How long can that uh, persist? Well, normally it would freeze up because uh, you need something to drive a chemical reaction. But if we made it uh, photosensitive, then we maybe could keep it going indefinitely. Uh, uh, there's whether this shell has the golden ratio involved in it uh, that you're looking at right now. It's mm, it might. <laughs> I wouldn't want to swear to it. It's just, I, it's just sort of in math. It's this is one of these things that just sort of keep coming up, like pi and the golden ratio. They come up in all sorts of contexts. Yeah. What happens in post-singular? That's, uh, well, that's going to come out about a year from now. And the idea there, uh, I was inspired to write that because of Charles Strauss's book, Accelerando. And in there, he has some people who, they have this idea. They say, well, let's grind up Earth and make it into a bunch of nanomachines. And then let's fan those out in, in Earth's orbit and make this sort of big sphere around the sun, kind of a Dyson sphere. And it can soak up the solar energy. and. It'll be running, you know, a hupa gubo wazillion, you know, bytes. And uh, so, and then, but it's just, it's one of those things, if you sort of think about it in another way, you say, well, that's maybe not the best thing to do with our dear Gaia that we live on, you know. It's sort of like the ultimate tearing down a forest for a strip mall. You know, it's just, it's just such an insane idea. At Strauss, I think, I'm sure he would agree with that, but just to be provocative, he presented it as this very reasonable idea in his book. And so in, in post-singular, there's actually an evil president called Joe Dokes. Or no, he's called, the evil president in this book is called Joe Dokes, and the evil president in my next book is called Dick Dibbs. <laughs> Since I'm writing pretty fast, I'm going to have time to get two evil president books out <laughs> while we still got one. <laughs> actually, in post-singular, he's put to death with lethal injection. <laughs> Put him down like a rabid dog. <laughs> but in, in this book, they drive him out of office by giving a really successful punk rock concert at the uh, at the baseball stadium. Because they, they have this campaign, it's called the, the 100% campaign. The heritagists are starting this 100% campaign. It's not enough that they have a huge majority in Congress. They want to have 100% of the office of the Congress, 100% of the governorships. They want to impeach all the, the Democrat judges. You know, 100% takeover. And then my man Bela, he's play, he joins in with uh, 
the uh, the Polish heavy metal band, and he's got his own band called Washer Drop, and they uh, they write a song called "100 Percent Asshole." And, <laughs> And then they're handing out paracomputers so everybody can see what's actually going to happen. And uh, so then the administration crumbles. If only it were so easy. <laughs> yes? I noticed that Robert Sheckley gave you a nice blurb here. I read Sheckley a long time ago. He was a great satirist. He's Space explorers go to a foreign planet and they build a subway car or a bar car and they all cram into it. Yes. And also, uh, Cory Doctorow did you a, a good blurb. Is there any relation to E.L. Doctorow? Well, let's, let's do Sheckley first. You asked about Sheckley. When I was growing up, um, Sheckley was really the first science fiction writer that I really loved a lot. I mean, I liked Heinlein very much as a boy, and uh, but Checkley, to me, it was somehow more on my wavelength. And uh, I think maybe his collection of stories, Untouched by Human Hands, I read <clears throat> when I was about 13. And at that time, I thought, well, being a science fiction writer is the, the coolest thing I could ever possibly be, do. And uh, I got to meet the Sheck man a couple of times. And he was, you know, it was very, very, very nice to be with him, a wonderful person. Uh, he just died, uh, I guess it's been a year now, um, but he was uh, a really good writer. I liked him a lot. And uh, in some ways, I do some some things that are a little bit similar to him. So we both have this thing that we're sort of cursed. Whatever we write comes out funny, even when we're trying to be serious. Okay, in this book, to try to fight that back, I killed off a couple of characters you know, I'm not just some clowns. You know, people are dying. <laughs> Let's see if that'll wipe the smile off your face. But, uh, yeah. So your book's about predicting the future. Do you have any trends that you think you're going to catch on in the next few years? Um, well, video blogging is going to get very big. Uh, and then there's going to be things lots of people will have reality TV shows that are their lives, they'll just wear a camera all the time. And then there'll be contests, sort of like American Idol, but whose life is the most interesting, you know? And uh, that'll be something pretty big. You'll also see people, um, there's going to be a device called the Life Box that people use to write their life story, because everybody wants to sort of, when, particularly when people retire, they often want to write their autobiography. And that's when they find out that writing is hard because it's you're trying to get your life is this big bush, this fractal, you know, endlessly branching, and you're trying to like make it this just this string, this string of beads. And uh, but there'll be a device like a cell phone that you can talk to and it will ask you questions and then you give it the answers and it will sort of accumulate all the answers and then other people can talk to it and it'll imitate you and it'll say the kinds of things that, that you might say. So that would be something that will happen. Um, then the environment will get cleaner. One thing, sometimes people, there, there, there's bound to be some things that are really surprising. When you look at where we are compared to we, where we were in 1900, uh, you know, we didn't have electronics then. We didn't, you know, so hardly had any medicine compared to what we have now. So there's a good chance there might, there might still, we might still strike it lucky and find some, you know, really great, 
uh, source of cheap energy, you know, something with string theory or something bizarre. Maybe we can get below. I have this dream that uh, quantum mechanics, it's, it's like all this fog. It messes up so many things. And maybe under it, there's still some crystalline clarity. And we can go down to the subdimensions and start siphoning out endless energy. And everybody can have telepathy. I mean, maybe things are going to turn out a lot better than I expected. Yeah? Sticking with predictions, which one do you think of yours? You're most proud of just kind of like, I nailed that. Uh, well, there's so many it would be hard to predict. <laughs> well, I did predict vlogging getting really popular two years ago, and it's really popular now. So, v video blogging. Right, I remember the Halloween scene in one of the wear books with the video blog with the butterfly of the Castro party. Oh, yeah, the dragonfly. Yeah, I'm waiting for the dragonfly. That's, uh, I'm always telling people to get to work and start making these. Be little cameras about the size of a dragonfly. It flies around, and there's just racks of them, like up on some high, like a TV tower, where people can't get at them. Then you go online and you rent an hour of the dragonfly, you know, what, 100 bucks, and then you're driving this thing. So you can go, you know, you can go like the scuzzy alleys that you're scared to walk into and see what's going on, or you can go follow the mayor around and see what he's doing, you know, or you know, or, or like if you want to go on a trip somewhere. You can just go and order up a dragonfly. You know, I'm going to Vienna, and you know, maybe hypothetically, or I'm going to whatever Phoenix, Arizona, and all the brochures that you see, all the pictures you see on the web, everything looks beautiful. They never show you, you know, that this place is next to, you know, next to a dump, or <laughs> you know. So then you get the dragonfly, and you can check the scene out. So that would be a really nice thing to have. Um, I have a whole book of predictions called Saucer Wisdom. We published it right at the at the millennium, at the turn. And somehow the media didn't latch on to it because the thing is, the predictions they wanted to hear were the predictions that they already believed were true. So that's the type of predictions that do well. That's what you'll, you'll hear more from futurologists that are being paid by businessmen to make predictions. And they, they don't necessarily want to hear things that they haven't thought of. Not able to hear them, yeah. Yeah. Well, that was that was a theme when we started writing cyberpunk in the early '80s. That was kind of the theme that was getting our interest. That people are becoming more like machines, and machines are becoming more like people. Like a, a simple example, if you're making a phone call. For support or help, you kind of have to behave like a machine. You have to press all these numbers to get in through this phone tree. And then there's the, the machines that, that answer and, and talk to you, the user interface. It's getting a little more human. I um, use the first person singular. Yeah. The machine would say, please hold while I do this. Oh, yeah, the machine, yeah. Uh, total nerve on their part. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's, it's escalated. It is an I. That's nice, yeah. The Turing test is over. <laughs> but uh, the thing is, this said, uh, I don't think machines are really very close to being like us. Uh, this is a remark I've made before. I used to teach artificial intelligence at, at San Jose State. That was my day job for 20 years, teaching computer science. And uh, when you look under the hood, the things that 
the so-called artificial intelligence that we have is really, it's just a bunch of, it's a, a lot of special tricks, special purpose, gimmicks. It's not like there's some overarching program we have that if we could just, they're always saying, well, once we get computers that are, you know, whatever, a thousand times as fast, you know, wait 10 years, they'll be, have enough RAM, they'll be fast enough. We, we still don't have the program to put on it for it to be intelligent. You know, it's really not there. So we, we don't know how to do it. We're not close to knowing how to do it. And that, that's, the, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. So it's, it's not, I mean, maybe someday there will be machines that are a lot like us, but I don't think it's going to be in the next, next 20 years, maybe in 100 years. It's not going to be all that soon. Uh, there's some, some people like have been popularizing the idea that's going to happen really soon, but uh, I don't think it will. Actually, I think digital computers will go away entirely. I mean, it's not like, I mean, look, in the 1900s, people would say, you know, imagine a really good watch, you know. Maybe someday there'll be a watch that's just like a person, you know. Or it's, and, you know, nobody cares about watches anymore. And I think digital machines will go away. And that's sort of what I'm getting at here. I'm having this sort of analog computer, like water running or flames or air. It's doing so much more computation than, uh, that's why the weather is so hard to predict, because what nature does is, is so much more intricate than is what inside some hideous beige box that sits under your desk and makes noise and breaks and needs upgrades all the time. You mentioned Cyberpunk. William Gibson, uh, who did a little lecture in the Page Street Library, said that he didn't believe in, in uh, cyber, rather uh, time travel. Okay, you said Gibson was here and he get talked in the Haight Street Library and he said he didn't believe in time travel. Yours Gibson is right in there. He just time traveled here. No, uh, well, whether time travel, sometimes it's a useful gimmick. Science fiction, it's sort of, it's also a bunch of cheap tricks. It's like, there's things I call power chords. I mean, there's things that are fun to write about. They're fun to think about UFOs, giant ants, and <laughs> time travel, bridges to another dimension, uh, you know, robots. And, and time travel is one of those things. And probably, in reality, we're not that likely to have time travel. But there are, there are ways, if, if you know a little bit, a little bit of learning is a dangerous thing. There's always ways, if you know a little physics, you can draw diagrams and say, oh, we could get time travel this way. So one problem with time travel is, is paradoxes. You know, if I go back and, you know, if I kill myself before I build the time machine, sneak up by myself, then could I do it? And then, but there's always, maybe you decide not to do that. Okay, maybe you do go back to the past, but and then you say, I don't think I'll kill myself. I mean, but you should do it to make a paradox. Well, I don't want to. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's, I once actually, I once got to meet Kurt Gödel, and I said, well, what if, what if you went back in time and then did the opposite of what you knew you were going to do? And he said, well, you wouldn't do the opposite of what you knew you were going to do. So maybe time travel could happen. Anyway, the reason I'm defending it is because I'm just writing a proposal for a book that has some time, time travel in it. There's a, a creature from beyond infinity that comes and drops into our space, and it needs a little bit of time travel.
Does cyber familiarity breed cyber contempt? Well, it's certainly true for computers. Familiarity builds contempt. Uh, it's like the more you know about them, <laughs> the less you like them. <laughs> it's uh, the better nature looks. Nature looks real good around Silicon Valley. Um, Lauren, you're always asking me these hard questions about robotics. Uh, uh, so you're asking me, you say, John, John Searle, he's a philosopher at Berkeley. He's a man who can light up a room with his, the warmth of how much he loves himself. <laughs> he, he, uh, he's a nice guy, though. <laughs> but, uh, but he uh, he has this thing called the Chinese room paradox, and it says, "Well, what if I was supposed to translate something into Chinese, and I didn't know Chinese, but I was in this room, and people would pass in uh, sheets with uh, ideograms on them, but I had like these really good dictionaries, and I could go and look everything up, and uh, kind of like phrase books, and then I'd look up the answer I should put, and I'd write down some ideograms that were supposed to be the answer, and I'd slide those back out." And I would do this mechanically without ever knowing what it actually said. And he said, that's what it would be like for a machine to be having a conversation with you. It would just be using tricks to and ne never really understand. And, uh, well, I mean, that's what he says. But, I mean, maybe maybe sometime the machine could understand. It could, it could, as well as doing that, it could be building up a mental model of the world. You know, it could, I mean, there's no reason it couldn't build up a... a three-dimensional virtual reality, you know, have uh, symbols and images. So it's sort of, it's, it's an interesting argument because people have written so many papers attacking it and then defending it. So it's nice to, to think about it. Again, I sometimes have the feeling that we're just so completely on the wrong track with artificial intelligence that a lot of the debates we've had are almost beside the point. It's almost like Maybe in the Middle Ages, people would debate about how we were going to fly, and like they're always talking about what kind of feathers to use, you know. And, and you know, then it turns out that didn't have anything to do with it. You know? So it's—I have this sense that's sort of where we are with artificial intelligence right now. <laughs>